everyone. This is Josh Hallman. Welcome to the Beyond Mars podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders in aerospace, aviation, and defense. Today, our guest is the one, the only, Jonathan Lacoste, CEO and general partner at Space BC. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited as always. I'm really excited about our conversation. You know, the past couple of shows we've had different people in aerospace, defense, um, you know, engineers or higher ups at NASA, but we're coming from a different angle with you. You know, you're, you come in from tech startups and now you're, you've entered into space from the VC side. So I'm really excited to talk to you about three main things. You know, how did you get here? You have uh, quite a, a pinball um, career and, and, and you found yourself into a really thriving industry. And I'm excited to talk to you about that. Second is cool initiatives that Space VC is working on, um, if you're allowed to disclose. Uh, and, and, and lastly, where you see the industry going. Um, there's a reason why you are investing. You know, what, what are you seeing? So let's just dive right in. First part is, you know, how did you get to be the CEO and partner of Space VC? And I want you to start from from the beginning, uh, I know we talked a little bit about your Ohio days, uh, but maybe start from the beginning and, and kind of walk through that path. Yeah, that sounds great. It, it looks like it's going to be a great conversation. There's a lot to unpack there. I think on my end, I grew up in the Midwest. I was a Midwestern kid uh, in Ohio, primarily, as you mentioned, went to undergrad in Boston and uh, immediately um, got sucked into the entrepreneurial community and ecosystem in Boston and uh, in Cambridge. Um, and was just enthralled by it. It was not something that I ever had exposure to. Um, and innovation and startup ecosystem broadly, you know, and there was there was everything from you know consumer tech to e-commerce to at the time it was mobile apps and gaming and uh, enterprise technology and you know some more deep tech and robotics, especially in Boston. And so uh, a few classmates and I uh, synced up and, and we launched a uh, an enterprise software company and got a little bit of traction. Three semesters in, I ended up dropping out of school. Uh, so it was my sophomore year, and we did TechStars Boston back in, this is 2013, and uh, we ran the company for 10 years. Um, I stepped down um, at the end of last year after after running the company. Uh, it's still successful. It's still growing actually quite nicely, and um, we just had a board call last week, and you know, m- metrics are up all-time high year over year, so it's really exciting to see. Um, but after 10 years of the entrepreneurial sprint, I took a pause and thought about what I wanted to do next. And one of the things I was really excited about for a variety of reasons, Josh, was helping other first-time entrepreneurs and founders that were building businesses and companies in really impactful, multi-generational industries. Hmm. And I had always been intellectually intrigued by space. It had always been a little bit of an arm's distance for me. And so I took two or three months and did a lot of Zoom calls with people that were way smarter than myself, whether those are you know JPL and other NASA experts or whether those are other investors in the space tech ecosystem, aerospace, or whether those were founders themselves. And just realized there were, there were a lot more similarities than there were dissimilarities with the inflection point space was at and decided to jump in. And one of the best ways I knew how to help was to align myself with partners and founders um, and raise a venture capital firm. So that's basically what happened. That, that's amazing. You know, one question I have as you're, did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? When did that kind of click for you? I was exposed in high school initially. I did an entrepreneurship competition with a friend. 
we ended up winning that. And the significance of winning that wasn't that material because winning your high school entrepreneurship competition isn't something <laughs> you put on LinkedIn or your resume. Yeah, you can if you want. You can, yeah, certainly. It's, it's not something I lean into. But the reason I share that is because I think it showed that was a moment of inflection and interest for me where I really decided to lean into something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, second semester, senior year of high school, this was, you know, well past a decade ago. Um, but a lot of people were slacking off and not taking that too seriously. And right. my friend and I, we were enthralled by it. So to your question around when I really knew it was that, it was that exposure. Um, but it was really codified for me in terms of the professional opportunity when I went to Boston and I was surrounded by, you know, world-class startups and entrepreneurs and, um, you know, that ecosystem in Boston, um, you know, really solidified it for me. Yeah. And, you know, then the next phase within entrepreneurship, you're, you're, <laughs> How many years were you in Boston in college, and 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 you decided, you know what, I I can do this. I I, I can take that leap. Um, you know, what went, what decision process did you go through on that, and how did um, I'm I'm going to ask for some of the older folks that are listening. How did your parents handle that when you said I'm dropping <laughs> out? I I got this great company. I got this great idea. I think it the best decisions often come from a combination of conviction and humility. Mm-hmm. And so we were very self-aware that dropping out was not because we had a master plan and we knew exactly what this was going to become. And we were entirely convinced of that. I don't think you can truly be a great entrepreneur if you're not always thinking through the downside and the risks and, and what could go wrong and how to be better. And so we walked into it very self-aware. Tactically, the reason we left was because we had raised a million and a half dollars in seed funding my co-founder and I were trying to balance schoolwork with running a company and scaling at that point. Yeah. And neither of us came from significant means of wealth. And so, you know, I remember the first $30,000 we raised, I called my mom and it was like the biggest check we had, I'd ever thought about receiving in my life. So you can imagine when we had a million or a million and a half dollars raised, there was honestly a very deep moral conflict about yeah. we have other people's hard earned money. And while school and academia is extremely important, you know, we're only spending 50% of our time uh, on this business. And, and let alone, we had no social life at that point <laughs> between yeah, school yeah. and work. So it wasn't necessarily sustainable. So we worked out a system where uh, we left and the thought was to take a one-year sabbatical, um, see how it would go. And we never had a conversation about going back because it just inherently, once we jumped in, we were able to prove enough traction and milestone beget milestone. And we were able to scale from there. I will say, though, both my parents are educators, uh, elementary and middle school educators. Mm-hmm. So it was not an easy conversation. Um, sure. <laughs> but, I, but I think luckily they, they had enough conviction and, and hope that we could figure something out in the next year. And worst case, we would go back to school. Uh, luckily, that never materialized, though. So, you know, 10 years later and still, you know, a, a college dropout. Before we dive into the what I usually talk to all my guests and the second ring of what, what you're currently doing, what 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 innovations are you seeing? I do want to ask, because I rarely get an entrepreneur on. So I, I want to ask, you know, as you've gone through this whole, before you even get to the space item, maybe if you want to talk about that, what is the biggest lesson you have learned as you have walked through building a, a Jebit, right? Your, your company. Um, it can be uh, lessons learned as in, you know, man, I, I'll never do that again, or holy crap, that was amazing. Let's do that every single time. I'll, I'll share two really important pieces of, pieces of advice that I wish I knew at the beginning. And 
um, are so important for anyone considering the entrepreneurial journey, but especially in space. The yeah. first is to make sure that you have a really world-class intimate understanding of the problem you're trying to solve and who experiences that problem. And the reason I say that and start there is because too oftentimes, especially with, with some of our extremely talented engineering and technical counterparts, they think about the product or the solution that can be created and then go and hunt for problems. <laughs> and, and that couldn't be more backwards. And I say that with humility because that's how we started too. We, we came up with what we thought was a clever solution and idea and went hunting to push it towards the market. When in reality, what I've learned over 10 years is quite oftentimes the most successful companies are either the most non-obvious ones or the ones that are so inherently boring, but straightforward in, in terms of what they solve, that the pain point and the, the problem they're trying to solve is so clear. And so I always, when I talk to entrepreneurs and founders, I really want to have an intimate understanding and see if they have an intimate understanding of why they're building this company and who this is going to help. And that's so critically important, especially if you're building a hardware intensive business that's very capital intensive. You don't have the ability to spend years and tens of millions of dollars of development going in the wrong direction. It's much right. easier with software where you can pivot, you know, write a few more lines of code, launch a new, a new MVP and go from there. The second piece of advice I would, I would say, and this is a joke that's shared amongst, amongst founders, they always say that first-time founders focused on product, second-time founders focused on distribution. And the reason that's true is because one of the things, the, the, the you know, old expression of, if you build it, they will come, mm -hmm. is not true. And so <laughs> inherently in thinking about the customer and who you're solving the problem for and what problem you're solving, you obviously need to nail the solution from a technical and, and go-to-market standpoint and make sure that it matches and there's quote-unquote product market fit. Mm -hmm. But most importantly then is understanding how to distribute your product or solution in a way that makes it very easy for customers to find and to leverage. And so a lot of the times that means leaning into partnerships and strategic commercial uh, you know, partnerships uh, and, and vendors much earlier on than companies realize. So those would be my two pieces of advice is really thinking about the problem you're solving before you think about the technology and really thinking about the distribution of that and not just focusing on the product. Wow, that's... Those are really, really incredible insights. You know, I think of some of the, you know, the, the pillars of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and others. And we think, oh, my gosh, they they were building an iPhone and people came. Another way to think through it through the lens that you have brought up is maybe they could see around corners and know that that's what the customer actually needed. Like that was a need. And they tapped into that. It's not that they just made it up from from thin air. They were seeing behaviors in the psychology and saying, this is where it's going um, and I will build it. Is that, is that what you're, you're alluding to? Yes, but there's one very clear distinction. Anytime someone says or invokes you know, jobs or gates as their analogy for why they know better than what the customer, uh, what the customer needs, I'm always a little apprehensive just because that is so one in a million in terms of like cognitive ability and, and yeah. vision. That said, what you're saying is absolutely correct. And maybe one way to, to like very tactically define it, it is more important to listen to a customer or a potential user or a partner of your product or service and understand what their pain is, not what they're telling you they need. So mm -hmm. listen to what their problem is, and then your solution should help try to solve that versus sometimes when they tell you what they think the solution is, you should listen, but th that might not be the most efficient manifestation. They may be thinking about, within the confines of their own 
organization, their own budget, their own team structure, what that ideal solution is. And they could be right, but your job as an entrepreneur or as an engineer is to think about the construct of that technology for the broadest possible array of individuals. And oftentimes it's a slightly different elegant solution than what they're articulating. So listening to the problem, not the solution that they're providing is sometimes very helpful. I got it. No, it totally makes sense, which this is a great segue into uh, the second part. So, you know, what are you guys working on? You've started this uh, space VC, right? You're probably, like you said, you set up a bunch of Zoom calls, uh, maybe some coffee uh, in person. And um, so you've listened to them. What, what are you guys working on? What, 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 uh, what companies, types of companies are you looking at uh, or have already started to invest in? Yeah, we've made six investments today. One unique aspect of our fund is we are not stage specific, we are sector specific. So what that means is we will invest pre-seed. Our smallest company is a three-person team that spun out with some NASA IP. And our largest company is SpaceX. Obviously, about $100 billion valuation as of, as of Friday, right? So we, we will invest pre-seed to pre-IPO. The majority of our focus, though, is pre-seed to Series A. And we really love, and this will make sense given my background, software-oriented business models and data-rich businesses. Now, obviously in space, you have to build hardware a lot of the time. And even, even if there's a software or data-oriented business, it may manifest itself in vertically integrated satellites, as an example. Yeah. Um, but we try to find companies that have commercial viability and dual use from day one. We try to find companies that aren't as capital-intensive as building new propulsion thruster system or a new rocket engine or is a you know launch provider. We don't really invest in those companies. We look for something mm-hmm. that has commercial viability, low capex, software or data orientation. Um, you know, it could be a downstream business that is just a analytics and software provider that's leveraging space data. So I think the definition of what is a space company is is rapidly being blurred and, and we view that as a positive. But those are generally the companies that we are are uh, evaluating to start. You know, this is very analogous to what I'm hearing a lot through through folks I'm interviewing in that 20, 30, 50 years ago, space was mostly just pretty much pilots, was filled with pilots getting up there. Can you stay up there? Can you survive? And now people are broadening and uh, they're saying, you know, anything you can see on Earth, we're going to start doing in space. So, you know, you, you see trash, you know, guys picking up trash, All right? What is there a company that will start doing that? We, we definitely feel like we live in the future. It's something I have to ground myself with because to your point, our day-to-day is working with companies that are at their earliest inceptions a lot of the time and thinking about not only what the world will look like, but what space will look like five to 10 years from now. And that can be a really interesting mind space to be in. I will say one of my pet peeves is maybe too strong of a word, but, but one of the things that I wish the space industry did a better job of was marketing itself about why space companies and the space ecosystem is really at an important inflection point right now. Mm-hmm. And in my humble opinion, as, a, as an outsider and, and just starting to learn about these ecosystems over the past two years, it's way more than space tourism and billionaire space yeah. race and going to space to you know, um, you know, have, a, have a wealthy person's luxury experience. At the end of the day, governments, billionaires, wealthy individuals, commercial customers, always tend to be the ones to subsidize something before it becomes commoditized and at a price point that's more affordable and accessible to both individual consumers and you know smaller entities or companies. 
And so what I get really excited by is I want to invest and spend time on companies that are leveraging the beauty of space and the, the space of space, like <laughs> in all pun intended, yeah. um, to solve Earth's largest problems, whether those are climate orientation in nature, whether those are insurance or financial, agriculture, maritime, supply chain. There's a whole host of um, really challenging problems that we can solve from space. And uh, those are the types of companies that I think we need to be investing in and that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, a, a lunar base and a Martian base and asteroid mining, if we do those things well, will become inevitable. But it's not, in my humble opinion, where, you know, the average citizen should be excited about the promise of space. It, it's, it's way more about how can we make our daily lives better through the infrastructure and innovation in space. And I think that's where, you know, the focus should be for the next five to 10 years. Uh, I'm total agreement, um, which you've already started the, the third part, which is what, what trends do you, and this, this always happens. It bleeds together the whole, the whole interview. So um, what are you seeing and what, what are you excited about for the next five to 10 years? It's already happening, but there's a proliferation of the number of unique satellites and constellations that are being sent up. Mm -hmm. And that is being driven by obviously launch costs uh, continuing to, to decrease, but the actual cost of production for a satellite and off-the-shelf components decreasing. And I think we're going to get to a point soon where commercial customers won't care what satellite bus design you're using, won't care what rideshare you use to get it up into space, won't care what orbit it's in, and may not even really care about the particularities of the type of data. They just want to know, does that solve my problem? And how is that visualized and how actionable are those insights? And so there's an entire complex supply chain that happened that exists in aerospace, defense, and in space today, that is an opportunity to simplify and bring to the software and web application layer for individual customers and companies. That is massively disruptive. I think there's a couple of chokeholds and bottlenecks as a part of realizing that vision. One of those is unique different types of data. You mentioned optical imagery. Obviously, there's synthetic aperture radar. There's some really interesting thermal uh, imagery companies, uh, radio frequency RF monitoring and mapping. There's a whole host of different types of data. And I think one thing that we're seeing play out and that we have some thoughts on is which data sources are most important. How do those data sources co-mingle together? How do they combine? There's definitely going to be some consolidation in the industry as, as these companies inevitably you know, merge and, and blend together. Um, and what's the most elegant way to bring that to different markets? You know, Bringing this data to life for uh, a Wall Street trader versus a farmer, just to use like very cliche analogies, yeah. is going to be a very different um, a different approach and, and different set of web and interface technologies. Hmm. So I think about that a lot. The other thing I think about is what are investments in um, you know areas that are that are going to need to be solved in order for us to be successful in space, regardless regardless of what satellite constellation company wins, regardless of what communications infrastructure launch provider. What are the things that you need to be need to be solved for? And one of those things uh, is radiation solar radiation in particular. Um, we, we feel that there's a lot of innovation in that space. So one of our investments is in the solar radiation uh, uh, prediction and mitigation uh, uh, world. So that's interesting. And then the last one, which always gets you know some, some fun eyebrows and, and gets a little sci-fi, we actually invested in an in-space manufacturing company. Um, mm -hmm. There's been a lot of hype around it um, in terms of the, the potential of the sector. But as we got to know the team and, and the company better, it's called SpaceForge. We were extremely impressed by the reality of leveraging microgravity for in-space production. It's been proven on the ISS over the past few decades. 
the challenge and the constraints has always been around, candidly, astronauts on the ISS and the amount of time and human interface and space and price. Yeah. It just was not commercial scale. But with cost to launch being cheaper than ever and infrastructure in space and low Earth orbit actually being a reality, we see that as really interesting to solving some of Earth's most important problems, whether those are telecommunications, semiconductor chip shortage, EV, and, and the shift to electronic vehicles. So yeah, those are some of the things that we get excited about and, and, and maybe just a little bit of a sneak peek in terms of how we're investing today. That's, a, that's amazing. And yeah, if anyone is interested, definitely go to uh, their website. They go through a couple of these companies that he's talking about and you've highlighted a few of them. But um, as I was looking through them, I was wondering, what's, what's, how do these connect? And you, you've definitely woven it uh, perfectly on what you're kind of, hey, these are three or four different uh, landing pads we'd like to, to aim for right now. Well, Jonathan, thank you uh, for taking just a little bit of time out of your day. I've really enjoyed learning how you got started, what you're doing right now, you know, your thesis of making a, a better tomorrow <laughs> for all of us and, and investing um, your time and, and, and money and, and just intellect into helping us get there and just sharing a few companies that you are investing in. And I'm sure there'll be more in the near future, but I have totally enjoyed our time and I hope we get to talk in the near future on how you guys are doing. But thank you for being on today and have a, a wonderful rest of your week. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Josh. I really enjoyed the conversation.